We are in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 32 through 45. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles, page 846, we'll bring you to Mark chapter 10. I have entitled this message, but it shall not be so among you. But it shall not be so among you. That is in the text, and hopefully that will make sense as we move through the passage this morning. I'm going to quote a French president from 1959 to 1969. He said these words, We do not have friends. We have interest. We have interest. That was General Charles de Gaulle, president of France several decades ago. What did he mean? Simply that France's relationship with other nations could only be decided around the interest of France. This is, by the way, the underlying common denominator which determines most national relationships and decisions. In fact, you have probably heard in the news, if you've been watching, in regard to Libya and other such things, when we involve ourselves in international affairs, the question that comes up regularly is, what is the interest of the United States of America in engaging in this country? And it is put forth that if there are no interest for us, we should stay out. So, I'm not here to talk about politics or government but I am here to talk about the body of Christ. And should we maintain that type of position? In other words, we only get involved if somehow it will benefit us. Well, I think Jesus has something to say about that. And I want to look at that with you this morning. Mark chapter 10, 32 through 45. We're going to read the text. Just follow along with me. And then we'll come back to it. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, him and his disciples, a crowd that had gathered. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Pretty powerful stuff. Pretty serious. And then verse 35 just doesn't even seem to fit. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, 
you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This morning we're going to look at two fundamental truths we must embrace so that our conduct rightly reflects our Christian confession. You know, this is just one of those messages that is serious in nature, not a lot of humor involved. And it is a message that I hope that you will listen to. It is a message that Christ has given before. We've even dealt with this issue of service and being great in the kingdom of God. And here we are again in the text of Mark addressing this topic. We need to hear it. I need to hear it over and over and over again. And it is what distinguishes the body of Christ from the world. Or it should be this idea that we would give ourselves away for others. That we would set aside our interest, even sacrificially, to be a slave of all. So this morning we're going to look at two fundamental truths we must embrace, as I said, so that our conduct rightly reflects our Christian confession. In other words, so that what we do, what we say, what's in our heart, aligns with who we say we follow. Who we say is our Master and our King. So before we look at the first truth together, I want to just do a little bit of context here. This is the third time of three times that Jesus has talked about His death and resurrection to His twelve disciples, specifically telling them it was going to happen. And I just want to remind you of the last two and what occurred around that e- those events. Remember the first time in Mark chapter 8.31, He made this pronouncement, I'm going to be killed. And what was the response of His disciples? Peter rebuked Him. He rebuked Him and He told Him, in fact... That will never happen to you. That's not going to happen. Now, they did not understand that Jesus' sacrificial death that He was telling them was going to take place was absolutely necessary for their salvation and their ability to be a part of the kingdom of God that they were waiting and longing for. Beyond that, they had trouble at this point comprehending how Jesus' death made sense in light of what they were anticipating He would establish when He came into Jerusalem. That would be His kingship. If He is the Christ, and He was, and they believed it, that meant that He would rule and reign in God's kingdom as King. How does His death fit with that picture? So they were confused. They were confused. The second time Jesus announced His death and resurrection to His disciples was in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. And there we're told that the disciples this time did not ask Him anything. In fact, they were afraid to ask, the text says. 
But do you remember what followed? The twelve got into an argument about who was the greatest. Okay? So Jesus addressed their argument by giving them the proper definition of greatness. Humility and service. Humility and service. A definition that was certainly contrary to the culture and to their individual definition of greatness. But you know what? They were slow to embrace Jesus' teaching. We're slow. I'm slow. And so here we go again. Mark chapter 10, 31 through 34. The third prediction of Jesus' destiny in Jerusalem. And this one contains more detail than the other two and leaves no doubt about exactly what will happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. He will be condemned by the leaders of Israel. He will be handed over to the Romans, the Gentiles. They will execute Him. He will be mocked, spit upon, severely beaten, flogged, killed, and three days later rise again. Now, beloved, Jesus was focused and determined to go to Jerusalem in order to lay down His life for sinners. But Jesus' disciples clearly had other things on their mind. Like what exalted position of power or rank they might occupy in God's kingdom with Jesus. The contrast between the self-sacrificing attitude and actions of Jesus and the self-seeking attitude and actions of His disciples could not be more apparent than in this text. And that brings me to the first point. You can follow along in your bulletin the outline that is within it. Self-seeking is a central characteristic of the world. But it should not be a characteristic of Christians. It should not be. Let me define self-seeking. Self-seeking, at least for this sermon, simply means seeking only to further one's own interest. We'll just leave it at that. Seeking only to further one's interest. It is a selfish type of seeking. And I would add, even that sometimes at the cost of others' interest. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now listen, James and John were there with the others. They had just heard about the suffering that their master would endure in Jerusalem. But what occupies their foggy minds at this moment in history is gaining a unique advantage over everyone else in this anticipated kingdom. When they say, grant us to sit on your right and your left in your glory, glory means kingdom. You can see that in Matthew chapter 20, verse 21. The exact same story in another gospel, but there, the word used is kingdom. That's what they're thinking about. That's what they're anticipating, beloved. 
That's what they came to expect based on many Old Testament prophecies. That when the King came, when Christ, Messiah, came to this world, He would establish His righteous kingdom. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. The picture of what they are speaking about is Jesus sitting on the throne. The throne. A special chair reserved for the King in His kingdom. And James and John then having access to the seat on His right, which would have been the greatest position of prominence underneath the King, and the seat on His left, which would have been the next greatest seat of prominence or recognized importance. That's what they're asking for. Now, on a positive note, James and John's request shows that they clearly believe that Jesus was the Christ and Messiah. Otherwise, their question would be insincere. So they believed He was it and He was going to establish His kingdom. But on a negative note, one writer says their request was selfishly motivated. They did not err on the side of humility. For them, the question, who should be the greatest, which was asked in Mark chapter 9.34, apparently had not been settled. Even Even though Jesus spoke to them about that and talked to them about, you want to be great in chapter 9? Serve. Take a position of humility, last place. That's how you become great in the kingdom of God. But for them, they were still discussing greatness and seeking the highest position of greatness in that kingdom. At least they thought. You know, they weren't coming to Jesus, beloved, and asking, Jesus, how can we serve in your kingdom? What is the position of service? In fact, Jesus, what is the lowest position you can think of? The most humbling position. I want it. <laughs> no. They were asking for the positions that were reserved for those who were served by people, at least in the world's system. That position on the right and the position on the left... You may not have been king, but you still were the highest ranking in that kingdom. And people bowed to you. People answered to you. People served you. The challenging words of Jesus to His disciples in Mark chapter 9.35, when He said, and I've quoted it several times, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Those words, beloved, seem to have gone in one ear and and out the other. Just like I'm sure some of these sermons do. Jesus' response to James and John, though, by the way, was gracious. It really was. And it was informative. But it really wasn't understood by the men at that time. Jesus is so gracious. Man, He could have... Could have given them a verbal beatdown right now. But he didn't. He didn't. Look back at the text, Mark 10 38. Jesus said to them, You do not you do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, good old James and John, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus, in a sense, was saying, guys, your ambitious request of me is really made from ignorance. You have no idea what you are asking because you still do not understand or accept how greatness or prominence in the kingdom of God is established. (laughs) It certainly does not come by me granting a personal favor to my power-hungry friends. Okay? We know that. Right? We see that in the corporate culture. Or even within families. Or, or whatever. And sometimes we refer to this as, some of these things as nepotism. If you don't know what that means, that's when a family member is shown special treatment, especially in a work environment. I've seen this. Simply because they're a family member, not because they're the best person for the job or position, right? Favoritism. Favoritism. He's saying, guys, this is not a corporate culture. Just because you're close to me, and in fact, they were very close to Jesus. There were twelve, but there was an inner circle, James, John, and Peter, that Jesus paid special attention to. They were allowed to go to things and places that the other twelve were not. So maybe they were thinking that they had an in, a special in with Jesus. And here they come asking, really for a favor. In fact, one translation translates it exactly that way. Would, we would like to ask a favor of you. Give us a good position in the kingdom. I mean, after all, you're the king. Can't you grant it? Now, regarding some information here about Jesus' response, I want to cover this with you. Regarding the cup. When he talks about the cup, it's important for us to understand. In the ancient world, one way to kill a person, like a king, was to poison their cup. Was to put something in their cup, the king would drink it, and then he would die. And that is why kings had cup bearers. Cup bearers. Nehemiah was a cup bearer. What that means is, he had to drink the king's cup before the king drank it. And then they would wait to see if he died. Good job, huh? Excellent job. But because they had this system of security in place, it kind of acted like a preventative measure. They knew that that was going to happen. They weren't interested in killing the cupbearer. They wanted to kill the king. From this practice, the phrase to drink the cup, to drink the cup, it became a metaphor or symbol for tragedy and disaster. For tragedy and disaster. And in the Old Testament, the image of drinking the cup is used multiple times as a picture of God's wrath or judgment being poured out on a people when he talks about them drinking the cup of his wrath. Okay, you can look at Psalm 75, 8. You can write these down and look at them later. Isaiah 51, 17 through 23. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 28 for a few examples. Generally speaking... To drink the cup was not a pleasant experience because it was viewed as a cup of suffering. So just understand that. This is not a good thing to drink the cup. Not in the context. 
Now, regarding baptism. Can you be baptized with the baptism I will be baptized with? Here, Jesus is not talking about the Christian ceremony of water baptism for believers. That hadn't even been implemented yet in the way that it is after Christ resurrected. Strong's Greek Dictionary defines baptized simply as this, to make whelmed. Whelmed. Have you ever... How many of you heard the word whelmed before? Before I just said it. Really? Very good. Three. Yeah. Whelmed is not a word we use. It simply means to engulf or submerge something in water. Engulf or submerge something in water. Okay? But the word was commonly used in a metaphorical sense of being flooded or overwhelmed with calamities or distress. Okay, we, we speak in a similar way. We say something like this, I'm drowning at work. Are you really drowning at work? Yes. That doesn't mean that, that the water has flooded over you. It means that just the difficulties have come upon you and you feel like you can't breathe, you're suffocating. In the same way, we say, listen, I can't even keep my head above water. Right? Are we saying we don't know how to swim? No, we're saying that this is just too much for me to take on and it's drowning me. So in the same way that we use that type of language, Jesus is using it here when he speaks of baptism in this context. Jesus' cup of suffering and God's wrath was drank to the bottom. And his baptism completed when he suffered at the hands of evil men and took upon himself at the cross the holy wrath of God against sinners. That's what he was referring to. James and John were completely oblivious to the depth of sacrificial service that Jesus was referring to that he would experience in Jerusalem. We are able. You have no idea what you're talking about. We are able, they said. One writer says they spoke in rash self-confidence, not understanding the cost. They regarded his question as a test of their moral courage. There's a sense here and they're just saying, we'll stand with you, Jesus. Yeah, suffering, whatever, we'll stand with you. Trouble, here we are. We can, we can stand up against that. They had no idea. So Jesus then promised them that they would indeed suffer. Oh yeah, you'll have suffering. You're not going to suffer and die in the place of sinners like I am, but you'll suffer for your service. You'll experience that drowning. And by the way, history confirms that. That is exactly what happened. They did suffer. But then he goes on to say, listen, ultimately the positions in the kingdom are not mine to give. And Matthew tells us specifically, they are granted by the Father. Matthew 20, verse 23. It's interesting. Just to note something here, one writer says regarding this idea that the Father grants the positions in the kingdom, he says, those for whom the positions have been prepared will themselves be prepared for them. They will have a fitness of character to occupy them achieved through sacrificial service. 
the writer is saying is, yeah, those people who sit in these great places of responsibility in the kingdom, they'll be prepared for that position by the Father. You know how? They will suffer greatly in their service to man and to God. That'll prepare them. There'll be no arrogant, self-seeking, power-hungry monsters ruling and reigning in my kingdom. And through personal experience, James and John, along with the other disciples, would eventually come to understand exactly what Jesus was saying about the suffering they would endure for serving Christ. But at the time, beloved, when this is happening, they were still stuck in their worldly and self-seeking thinking. Look back at the text with me, Mark 10:41. And when the ten heard it, heard what? Heard about what James and John had done. <laughs> when they got wind of it, the text says they be they begin to be indignant, mad, angry, foaming at the mouth at James and John their brothers in the Lord. And Jesus called them to Him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And I would underline this if you're in the practice of doing such things. I'd underline this in your Bible. Verse 43, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slaves, be slave of all. As I said, when they found out, they were angry, beloved, but their anger was sinfully motivated. One writer says, all of them would have gladly accepted the positions James and John had the audacity to ask for themselves but they resented the unfair efforts of James and John to secure those very positions. They revealed their spiritual shallowness by being indignant at the spiritual shallowness of the two. Do you understand what's going on? They're frustrated and they're angry. How dare you guys try to do that? They're just mad because they beat them to it. That's all. But patient Jesus instructed his men again by pointing out that the greatness they longed and strived for in God's kingdom will look very different than the display of so-called greatness in this world's kingdoms. The men who had the authority among the nations did not use their position commonly to serve the people but instead to dominate the people, to lord it over them. That's what it means. They exploited the people, beloved, for their own advantage. They sought and retained positions of power in order to further their own interests. Does that sound familiar? Has much changed in 2,000 years? 
They were in power not to serve, beloved, but to be served. But make no mistake about it. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, that is, that is the way of the world. They consider that great. But it shall not be so among you. Speaking to His disciples. Self-seeking has no place among My disciples, among My followers, among My people. No place. For you, greatness will be defined by your sacrificial service to others. By placing your focus on others' interests and not your own. You will be a servant. You must be. And willingly set aside your own rights, beloved, in order to give yourself to the benefit of someone else. That's what it means to be a slave of all. You give up your own rights for the benefit of someone else. Do you know, this is not my notes, and I dare not leave my notes because I have not enough time to finish what I have. But if a husband and wife just got this, if they got this, I don't think I would ever have to counsel them. But unfortunately, husbands and wives don't seek the interest of the other. They are regularly seeking their own interest, even at the cost of the other. The critical question for those who follow Christ is not what service I can extract, get from others, but what service can I, can you, beloved, as a follower of Jesus Christ, give, give to others? You know, we need to just admit right now, and I'll admit it with you, that Jesus' philosophy for life runs absolutely contrary to our secular culture and our sinful natures. I don't know about you, but, uh, it grinds. I look around, I have no examples of this, really, in the world. Some. I think about those firefighters going in the building as everyone's running out. I see some examples of this. And then my own nature fights against this. My sin nature. I want to serve myself. I want to put my interest at the top of my priority list. Fully with your interest. But it shall not be so among you. We all need to repent of our self-seeking ways. And stop trying to justify ourselves or even rationalize that type of behavior. We become so smart, so clever when we attempt to rationalize our sin, don't we? We make the greatest arguments, but they're pathetic. Self-seeking must not be one of our defining features. Okay, beloved? It must not be my defining feature. It must not be yours. It must not be the church's defining feature. And any time we engage in this self-seeking behavior, we do enormous damage not only to the name of Christ, 
but to His church. So, this brings us to the second fundamental truth we must embrace so that our conduct rightly reflects our Christian confession. And that is, look at number two, if you're looking, following on your outline. Self-sacrifice is a central characteristic of Christ, so it should be characteristic of Christians. In other words, if I, if I identify a Christian, I should be able to say, Christians, yeah, they're self-sacrificial. Everyone knows that. <laughs> I wish that was true. I wish when people said, what do you think about Christians? Self-sacrificial. Self-sacrifice, defining it for you, sacrifice of oneself or one's interest in order to benefit others. Just simple. Sacrifice of oneself or one's interest in order to benefit others. Look back at the text. This is powerful. Mark 10.45. Jesus told them what to do. Now He's going to give them the strongest reasoning possible to enforce what He just said. Four. Even, this is, this is a verbal slap. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Stop right there. Beloved, of all the people who have ever walked on this planet, okay, ever, there is only one who has actually been absolutely worthy of being served. Only one. You know who it is, right? It's not you. (laughs) And it certainly isn't me. That one is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is only that one. Amen, brother. It is only that one. But Jesus did not come into this world with the intention of being served. Wow. That's what he's saying. If anybody deserves to be served, you better believe it's me. But I came not to be served, even though I had every right to demand it. But He came instead with the glorious and selfless purpose of serving others. That is the strongest reason for us to turn from any participation in any way with self-seeking. And to be all about the business of self-sacrifice. One writer says, He did not compel others to serve, but rather spent Himself. I love that. He spent Himself in serving others. He gave it all, beloved. He didn't give 10% or 50% or even 99%. He gave it all. Serving. Sacrificially. So Jesus now stands as the ultimate example for us to follow in living a life of self-sacrifice and that is living for others, beloved. And I love this. His self-sacrifice is most visible and awesome in the unmatched service to humanity He ultimately rendered at the cross. Mark 10.45. Look back at it again. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. One writer says, Clearly, worldly notions of rank, honor, and privilege are out of place in the church that names Jesus as Lord. Self-seeking has no place in a church founded on the ultimate self-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No place. We are the church, beloved. We're not, we're not talking about a building. He's talking about the body. It has no place in the body of Christ because of our Lord. Now, the disciples at the time clearly did not understand the significance or the incredible value of Jesus' statement that He came to give His life as a ransom for many. We quote this verse, we love this verse, but the disciples were still confused. But the first Christian readers of Mark's Gospel, they would have understood it. And for us, living on this side of the cross, we certainly should understand it. Jesus' self-sacrifice was the ultimate sacrifice in that He gave His life on a cross to ransom or pay the price necessary to save sinners from what they deserve. Jesus, who did not deserve to die, willingly chose to die and suffer as a substitute for sinners. In other words, He took their place. We talked about it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The great exchange. At that cross, He endured the wrath of God against their sin so that all who believed would be freed forever from the penalty and power of sin in their lives. Beloved, the example Jesus has left us gives us every reason and motivation to live for Him and to live like Him. Committed to and focused on serving others sacrificially. One writer says, Jesus shows them, the disciples, the path to a throne is the path of service. If men would sit as kings in the kingdom, they must also stoop to minister as their messianic king himself did. Coming to be served? No. But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There are multiple implications or things that we can draw from this text and apply to our lives. I I talked about marriage, but there are many implications. But let me give you a few that maybe you won't think of. I like this. It's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., a man who loved the Lord. He said that everybody can be great. Everybody can be great. And that's what the disciples wanted, beloved. But they were going about it the wrong way. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. Listen to what he says. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. Right, Nathan? He's an English guy. (laughs) 
It might help, but you don't have to. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle, philosophers. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Wisdom. So that's awesome, beloved, because no one's kept out of being great in God's kingdom. Nobody. They just got to serve sacrificially. They got to put others' interests before their own. Let me give a negative implication. One writer says, looking at James and John is like looking in the mirror. (laughs) We can see our own selfishness and Mark hopes that we can see how foolish we look. And then he goes on further and he says, we can check our own attitude on this score by examining how we respond when given a menial task to perform that we might judge to be beneath our dignity. God truly reigns when Jesus' way of viewing life overthrows this world's destructive ways of living. I thought that was good. Something to reflect upon. Beloved, our self-seeking attitude and actions, they really seem ridiculous. They do. When we hold it up to the self-sacrificing attitude and actions of our serving, suffering, and life-surrendering Lord. Silly. Our self-seeking seems so silly. It's out of place. But it shall not be so among you. Let's pray. Father God, by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within God's people, all those who have called upon Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in Him and Him alone to redeem them and save them. Father, trusting in Him alone to change them and transform them. Father, trusting in His promise that He would give them the Holy Spirit and that would impact their lives. Father, help us through the Holy Spirit and through faith in Jesus Christ to live our lives in such a way that we would be characterized by sacrifice and service for the sake of Jesus Christ and the Gospel for His glory alone, Father. For we are weak. We are weak. And we are plagued with this old man who haunts us. And besides that, we have a culture that is contrary to everything Jesus has said. So, Father, may we bathe our minds in the truth of Your Word. May we let it pour into us so that it fills our hearts and leeches out of our bones, our hands, our feet, that we might be servants, that we would stop seeking our own interest, but with the strength of the Spirit, seek to serve others, just as our Savior did. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.